Well, good morning. My name is Asher. If I haven't met you yet, would love to greet you after the service, but we're thankful that we can all come together and worship the Lord uh, as he has called us to and we joyfully get to. If you haven't already, I want to encourage you to open your Bible to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. If you're not used to the Bible, the, the book of Ephesians would be at the top of the page there. You can use the table of contents. We all do it. Uh, the big number, that's the chapter number, and I'll be in verses 10 through 11 this morning. We'll be going through this. Now, if you're new to us today and for the next three sequential weeks, Lord willing, we'll be going through a topical series about the church. Uh, leading up till Easter, we'll, we'll celebrate Easter and all of its glory, and then we'll be going through the book of Joshua after that. But what I've wanted to do and what our elders wanted to do is to take four weeks and actually think about collectively and hear from God's word personally on what it is to be a church. Now, a lot of us compare and contrast churches. I'm sure some of you who are competitive want to have the best church. I certainly do. You certainly don't want to have the worst church. But what does it mean to be a church? For hundreds of years, Christians have been talking about what a true church is and what a false church is on just two different selections. That is, a true church is where the right preaching of the gospel is executed, as well as the right officiation of the sacraments are observed. So in our case, the sacraments would be baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then the right preaching of the word is where the truth of God, we believe, actually shapes us and we unapologetically preach it to ourselves. But I, I wonder when you think about what the role of the church does, a right church with right preaching and right sacraments, how the role of the church actually makes the glory and the beauty and the awesomeness of God actually made visible to a lost world and to ourselves. The, the goal of a church is to make much of the Lord to our own hearts and also to everyone else around us. Now, I wonder with all of that how you think our church makes the gospel visible. What do we do or not do that actually makes the gospel visible to ourselves and to a lost world? Now, I assume that all of us know what a true church is, the right preaching and the right sacraments. And, and I, you probably notice, if you've been here for several years, I, I like to tinker with things, possibly unhelpfully. Um, it's always a bad idea when I take on a project at home. I, I never seem to complete it. Uh, I painted the baseboards in one room in our house four years ago, and I got tired. But I love to tinker with stuff. And, and you and I, in various ways, could probably tinker with how our church does what we do, how we worship in our worship service, how we do different uh, projects or different things with kids or adults or different programs. Programs is the word I was looking for. But how we might tinker with this. And I, I hope that you'll consider how our church, in large part, will not be uh, distracted by what you and I could tinker with, but keep our eyes on the actual prize of displaying the gospel, these great truths of old, an untrue, unchanged gospel to ourselves and to the world. Now, Ephesians, our text today, this book has the intent of showing that it's actually the church where the manifold wisdom of God is made known. And when I say the church, I'm, I'm talking about the people, the, the gathering of us coming together, and then the scattering of us going out into our regular circumstances all week long. But it, it's in the church where the manifold wisdom of God is made known, according to God's eternal promise, accomplished by Christ Jesus. So we want to be a church that makes visible, actually, the gospel. 
We want to be known by nothing other than Christ and crucified. We want people who experience our lives in our homes or in our workplaces or even in our gathering, we want people to experience a visible gospel. And I'll be talking about hopefully what that looks like. But if you're unfamiliar with the gospel or you want more definition of it, the gospel is an announcement of the one true God who is holy and lovingly created human beings in his own image. And yet, even when those image-bearing humans sinned against him and are now under his judgment, because of his incredible mercy and his overwhelming grace, it was this same holy God who sent his one and only son, Christ Jesus, to live in their place, to die in their place, and to be raised from the grave and then would ascend into the heavens where he promises to return to us as our full Lord. It was Jesus who lived a perfect life of trust in his heavenly Father. That's what it means when you and I sin. We're we're not trusting the Lord and we go against his ways. But Jesus actually lived life perfectly, in perfect trust. Yet it was Jesus who was killed and died in the place of sinners. He rose in victory, conquering sin and death, and now calls you and I, the people in this text, and you and I today, to actually repent of our sins, turn from our sins, and to believe in him wholeheartedly with our whole lives so that we would be people reconciled to God forever and ever. I mean, that's the gospel in about a minute and a half. But we want to make that known to the world around us. We want that to resonate within our lives to everyone. So how does, how does our church, Cross Point Church, gather and scatter in such a way to make Christ known? The good news that you can be reconciled to God, that your sins can be forgiven, where you can have true fellowship with God, a relationship with him, a relationship of complete trust that you were meant to have in the garden. And so I think a healthy church, a right church, actually reinforces and encourages the actual spread of this gospel actual spread of this gospel to a world and to ourselves. But how how are you and I to make the manifold wisdom of God known? The first way is to have the right preaching of the word. But what does that entail? If you've got an outline, I want to encourage you to use it. I I did leave one out. So in uh, in between two and three, I'm going to add one. So now there's four points. You should only do three points to a sermon and a great quote at the end. But I'm going to do four points realizing after we printed everything, I'm like, I just forgot the most important point at all. And we ought to get there in a second. But what does it mean for us to make the gospel visible to the lost world? I think that the first thing is that we must rightly manifest or make obvious the very nature and character of God himself. He must be gathering our attention all day long. We must rightfully manifest and make obvious the nature and character of God. And we've got, I got two ways. You can do this in a lot of ways, but I've got two ways that you and I should manifest or make obvious the nature and the character of God. First of all, we must manifest God's holiness. We must manifest God's holiness. The lives of the members of our congregation should be marked by the holiness of God. And that holiness is shown about what his spirit is like or is showing what his spirit is like. Think, think briefly about the fruits of the spirit or the fruit of the spirit. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We should pursue this even when it doesn't bring us fame. Because as we pursue these things, we are lifting up 
of who God already is in his glory and holiness. And so it, we should remind ourselves that even when we don't get fame from this or we don't, we're not lauded from people from afar that we're actually ones who are following a crucified Lord where we're called to follow him as Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing to the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. Friends, our distinct lives, our particular lives need to make clear what the gospel is like. And by that, we must pursue holiness. Leviticus chapter 19 says, The Lord says to his people, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You and I should be holy because he is holy. In the New Testament, when there were few Christians in this early church in Turkey, Peter wrote, quoting these very words in 1 Peter chapter 1, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Friends, I wonder if our church is marked by the individual members of it, by the very holiness of God. As we aim to make the gospel visible to ourselves and to the world, we need to be pursuing holiness within that. Now, some response might be, well, pastor, our church is a church of sinners. Our church is a, a hospital for the sick. And that's good. It's true. It, it is obvious. All of our churches are churches for sinners. We have no members who are not sinners. We have no elders who are not sinners. We have no people here who are not sinners. But we are called, we are commanded to be a different special subset of sinners. We're to be repenting sinners, not captivated by our own sin, not relishing in our own sin, not just basking in it and saying, you know what makes us all a group? We're a group of sinners, but rather he calls us to be a group of repentant sinners in all of our lives. Those acting upon God's grace are led to repentance. So we're to be a body exemplifying God's own holiness through our repentance. And I wonder if God's holiness, his awesomeness is pursued or reflected by your own heart, even during this public gathering where God's transcendence and holy closeness sought by you when we gather. As he is holy and set apart and distinct, though he is also very near those who believe in him, is that reflected in your own heart's pursuit as you come into the doors, as you lift up your voices, as you quiet your heart to pray, as you thumb through the different texts in the Bible? Is it marked by a heart that is aiming to grasp the holiness of God. It's no doubt that our society and our own generation treats casualness as the height of intimacy and love. You wouldn't do that in premarital counseling, though, would you? You know what your wife will love more than anything is if you're just not pursuing her at all, just casual. It's her that should pursue you. But in the Bible, in God's holy revelation, what happens again and again when people really run into the real living God? Think about all the episodes of the people who encounter God. Ezekiel, Peter, those in the garden. They are undone. They fall forward. Those who reject God in every case in the scriptures, when they see the Lord, they fall back. But those who are caught up in Christ, when they encounter the living Savior, they fall forward. Or in Ezekiel, when he sees this overwhelming, apocalyptic, 
bizarre vision of the Lord, what does he do? What does this highly trained priest do? This man who knows all the words to say, what does he do when he encounters God? He's silent. Because the Lord's holiness overwhelms him. Jeremiah says, no one is like you, O Lord. You are great. And your name is mighty in power. And the church is to manifest this. Our church is to make this a reality. To lift up through preaching the holiness of God, but also to exhort one another in our lives the very holiness that he has called us to live like. The second thing under how we're to display the character and the nature of God is God's love. We're to visualize God's love to one another. We're to display God's character and his love. I won't spend long in this because I think all of us know this, or we should, but Part of the way that our church is to be distinct from the world is by the kind of love that we have, the kind of concern that we have for others. We're such a concern that it leads us to inconvenience ourselves for God's glory and for God to be glorified. Meaning in our own doing, uh, meaning by our doing good to those in our membership and those outside of our membership as well, our church should follow Paul's command in 1 Corinthians 10 where it says that nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. Now, I and other elders often get asked how someone can serve inside the church. And this is always an encouraging thing. Hey, we want to get plugged in more. We want to serve. We want to get involved. How can we get involved? How can they give back in many ways? I want you to, to dream of not a committee or a group that you can be a part of for decision making, but actually people whom you can align yourself with as they march towards Zion, very oftentimes lonely by saying that by you being alongside them, their march is more strong and more joyful than ever before. I've said it a thousand times, but our church has a membership directory in print form. It's the second most important book that I have outside of the Bible. And there we have all these people, 285 members right now. We have their information, you have their cell phone, you can text them, you can see, wow, they actually live right around the corner or whatever. And I think what it looks like for for a church to display God's love is to accept his love and then exude his love towards other people in all the various areas that we could serve one another. You think of the person who starts the day off a little bit early so that they can drive someone to church because that person can't drive themselves to church anymore. Or the person who says, I'm going to the grocery store. I know it's hard for you. It's stressful for you. It's slippery out there. What do you need from the grocery store? Give me your list and I'll go get it for you. Or the the people who come up early and serve us all by making coffee before we arrive so that when we arrive, we can actually enjoy having arrived here. Or the people who say, I've had kids. I've served in the nursery. I'm looking at you. You have kids in the nursery. I will help out once a while. Or the people who go, man, I haven't seen you in two weeks. And the last time I did see you, your face wasn't lifted. It was drawn down. Those those are the committees and teams that the one and others in the scriptures are actually calling us to. The one and others in the New Testament, all of them are directed towards members in a church. In part so we can display God's love to a world so that they can see God's character, God's love of his people. Now, There are honestly a thousand ways for you and I to serve one another. And if we don't have that kind of love in our church, then we're just another club. But we're called to be distinct by our loving one another in response to his holiness. We're to be distinct by our love. 
Now, a second way that I think our church can make visible the glory of God to ourselves and people around us is to rightly manifest the truth about humanity, to rightly proclaim, preach, teach, encourage the truth about humanity. Now, local churches intended to make clear about who you and I are. We're supposed to make clear about who God is to ourselves and other people, but also who you and I are. And we must display, kind of a subcategory, we must display the truth about humanity, not by valuing people by their demographics, but because they're made in God's image. What we are made to be and what we are is that we are image bearers of God. We're different than anything else that God has created in that we image God. We're to reflect God's glory to people around us, like walking little mirrors. Kind of terrifying when you think about it. But we're to be, you know, cosmic reflectors of his glory through our livelihood. And that should be reflected in our church, that the local church is a congregation in which each person is inherently valued because they're made in the image of God. So we shouldn't value someone, go read James, for their wealth. Can you imagine if you valued someone for their wealth? A couple of decades ago, there was a TV show called Cribs, where it would just show off people's houses. I mean, how many of us didn't watch that show and just be like, man, that is a a baller house. I cannot wait to be an NBA MVP, and I too will have a sauna in my own house. I too will have two pools in my own, inside my own house. It's our instinct to value people based on demographics like their wealth or their job. Maybe you're looking to find a partner and you want them to have some kind of status within the workforce or their education. Oh, they have three degrees. They must be three times smarter than me. Or their length of their membership in this church or their similarity to us. It's always amazing when people have kids, you know, people have friends before having kids, hopefully. Then they have kids, and their friend group actually becomes their kids' parents. Then their kids grow up, and they go off, and the parents realize, I actually don't like like you. I would never sit in the stands with you had my kid not played on the same field. But for whatever reason, they had enjoined their lives together with other people based on similarity. Your kid can hit a t-ball. My kid, too. Let's grow in the Lord. No, the Bible didn't talk about it that way. The Bible talks about image bearers of God coming together who were bought by a seeking savior. And that's what gives us all the things in common that we need. We should value people because they're made in God's image, because something in his glory is booming through them. And so therefore in our church, one thing that we should be outstanding at is the completely relationships and friendships actually across boundaries. Relationships and friendships across boundaries. You think about how important and encouraging this is inside of a church. It also resonates even to where you might actually go out in missions and evangelism. Missions is evangelism across a boundary. You know, you go to a country, you go to a neighbor, you go to a child or to an older person, you, you step over that boundary and you communicate to the gospel or you communicate the gospel in the church where the gospel is centered. shouldn't have any of those boundaries there at all. A church shouldn't be simply aimed at one part of the community or a kind of person, but should reflect something of the fullness and the variety of God's creation. So you read Genesis 2, where God created man in his own image. Paul, uh, when he's reasoning in Acts 17 about this, says that from one man, God made every nation of men, and they should inhabit the whole earth. 
Well, a community that lives out what it preaches about the value of each member points back to the truth that we are all created in God's image. We're all related to Adam and Eve. We want to say I have this heritage or this blood type or I always ask people, where are you from? And they might say, well, I moved here from this place. I'm like, yeah, but I want to know like where you were born and what city you grew up in. Because for some reason, you growing up in Oklahoma City versus Tulsa means something. It doesn't mean anything. You know where you're really from is the garden. And then you were placed out of it by your sin. Oh, now we actually all have something in common there. But our churches should teach and model this understanding that we are all image bearers. But we should also teach and model an understanding of our own depravity as image bearers. Churches should model and teach the truth of what's called human depravity. Our church life together should reflect the teaching and understanding of the fact that we are fallen, meaning we are sinners, meaning you are a sinner. And we know that the church is not an assembly of the self-righteous. And so we ask ourselves, is our church a community in which people are encouraged about considering themselves righteous in themselves? Is our church a community in which people are encouraged about considering how many rules they keep? Is our church a place in which people are understanding, being encouraged to understand, instead that we're actually sinful? Is this type of humility honored within our own church? Recognizing that you and I do come here because we're not okay. I do have certain friendships because that person will confront me when I display that I'm not okay. Do I, do I really see the love of, of my marriage or my friends or my family when they say, hey, I, I know you better than anyone and I'm coming alongside you as a sinner to lift you up. The Bible teaches us in Romans chapter 6 that all of us ascend and fallen short of the glory of God. And our churches should clearly teach that important truth, even though it's culturally unpopular. And this means a couple of things. It, it means for us, implication-wise, that it means that our presentation of the gospel, we should not be scared to use what God has given us in his law. You know, anyone with a kid, you say, don't touch that. And you do that because you love your kid. You build a fence. We've just built a fence for our 10-month-old in our living room. Why? Because we love our son, and we don't want him to wander off. We have locks on our doors because we love one another. We shouldn't be scared to use God's law to the point where we must show one another that they are, in fact, according to the Bible, a sinner. And we must show saints that we are saints who are sinners. Another implication for us in this is, I think, a good understanding of depravity, even of redeemed people, sets us up to explain the seriousness of church membership. I'll say that again. I think a good understanding of depravity, even of redeemed people, meaning you and I, sets us up to understand and explain the seriousness of church membership. Now, church membership has within it an understanding that you and I are not done with this earthly journey as soon as we're saved. Some of you got saved when you were six, like me. A lot of life has happened. We're not done. A lot of you became a Christian when you're older. You keep living. The Lord is not done with you. But what God will somehow be glorified in, this in, odd in-between time when we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, when our salvation is secured by the grace of God, and yet we're not finally and fully home. And so our church should 
not be a church that gives a presentation of being all complete and done and perfect and okay, but our church must understand that we are filled with sinners in daily and hourly and weekly need of God's grace. A lot of times people have, grown, have not grown up in Christian homes, and so they don't have a vocabulary of what sin is and isn't. But what we have in the church with a clear gospel being preached is a verbal explanation of sin and a living community of people who understand this for the sake of one another's good. And this leads the way to people actually confessing their sin to God and to each other. You, th- you think of, I get some comments that our church service, the flow of it seems really rote, you know, really predictable, really boring. And that's true. It is predictable that you and I need to confess our sin to a holy God every week. Friend, I would encourage you every day, multiple times a day. And I would imagine that some of you actually committed sin, not just against God, but actually other people. And it is a really good thing, challenging at first, freeing afterwards, to actually confess your sin to someone that you've hurt or bothered or sinned against, to use the Bible word, to receive their forgiveness and also have that debt lifted off you. Our church should not be a place that gives a presentation of being altogether complete and done and perfect. And a lot of people don't have a category for this because of how they've grown up or where they've grown up, but it is a church that makes the gospel visible through this. And this leads the way to people actually confessing their sin. So when they see something as a sin, they want to be forgiven. And they know that they can be forgiven by God from his very word being preached, but they also want to be forgiven by their brothers and sisters. And surely you see how this creates a different kind of community that can be held elsewhere in the world. No other way is like this. No other place is like this. And I hope you appreciate how powerful this is evangelistically, where Christians try to reach non-Christians, very often by actually soft-pedaling the truth about sin. But Christians, non-Christians are, are not as dumb as you might think they are. And they're not as shallow in their view of reality as you might assume. By talking about sin and God's holiness, you're actually meeting them on their level of looking around and going, you know, it doesn't take much time on this earth to realize not everything's great. Not everything's good. You you grow up long enough and it's not recess anymore. People actually now hurt you and bother you and sin against you. And by going to a non-Christian and talking about the seriousness of sin, the glory of the holiness of God, oh, that becomes evangelistic altogether. They know something's not right with and of themselves in the world. So when you tell them about sin, we actually give them the diagnosis that finally makes sense of their condition. So friends, we are sinners. But we must understand, thirdly, it's not on your outline, but how you and I can be accepted. How can our church make the gospel visible to the world by the right preaching of the gospel? We must be clear about who God is. We must be clear about who we are. But then thirdly, we must be clear about who Christ is, the Son of God. And what I'm talking about is I'm talking about the, the theological category of the exclusivity of the gospel, that Jesus is the only way to heaven. He's not amongst other ways of pursuing you know, holiness or rightness or goodness or even heaven, but it, it is Jesus in his death and resurrection alone that actually people can have security in this life and the life afterwards. So when we talk about Christ, we must talk about him as the exclusive hope that a fallen world can have. When we talk about Christ, we must talk about his divinity because we cannot be saved from a holy God except by someone who is holy himself. 
And we can't talk about Christ of being salvation for people if we deny his humanity, that he must be our substitute, meaning he must be a human, flesh and bone like you and I, with a soul, so that he can actually redeem us, redeem us as people. We must talk about his atonement, the pain of debt that happened on the cross. We must talk about, you think of these words, write them down, the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. The penal or the punishment that he took on as a substitute, meaning in our place and the very paying off of debt that our sins needed paying off. The penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. It is Christ Jesus who is the Lord and makes himself known to the world as the redeemer of God's own people. And he can act as the redeemer because he is the eternal son of God, whereas he became man and became fully God and fully man, two distinct natures, yet one person. And these are Bible verses all over the place because you and I very often will be tempted to describe Jesus outside of the Bible, not using Bible categories because we want people to accept those non-Bible categories. And then we want to, you know, trick them into like, oh, by the way, there's like this bestseller that you can read more about God in. But we have the ability and the clarity to use God's very word to talk about God in Christ who saves people. Because it was Jesus who rose from the dead on the third day of his death and ascended into the heavens where he anticipates coming back to judge the world as the righteous judge according to 1 Corinthians, according to Mark, according to Acts and all over the place. So by announcing these statements about who Christ is, we are absolutely evangelistic both to ourselves and encouraging ourselves, but also to a lost world where people often want to talk about evangelism as having new hacks and tricks where they say, we live in a new generation now. We've got to reach the next generation with another way. Well, people want to know what the Bible says about God. And right preaching has always been the means by which the truth of God goes out. The Bible, the very word of God, is crystal clear that people will be saved by what? By the preaching of his word about Christ, about our sin, about his holiness, to the point where, fourthly, we're to be a church making visible the glory and the gospel of God to ourselves and to a lost world by actually calling people to respond to the gospel. And what does it look like to respond to the gospel? Two things there. Preaching repentance and preaching faith. Now, when it comes to preaching repentance, our church is both to preach and model repentance. Repentance is the turning away from your sins and turning to Christ for forgiveness of life, in life. It's the turning away from your sins, and it's the turning to Christ for forgiveness and eternal life. Turning away from your way to his way, and this makes the church a remarkable community. A community where you admit your sin, meaning you confess it. You renounce it. You put it to death. You turn from it. His way, not mine. And that's why you can honestly say that our church is only for sinners. And there, the subcategory is repenting sinners. Where the local church helps make clear that we ourselves must repent and witness the real repentance of other people. And this is one of the reasons why we don't try to run the race of a spiritual life alone. Where it very often takes other people to come into our lives and saying... You keep bringing up this thing that you don't like doing, but are you even pursuing repentance in that? Or are you just waking up another day and going, ah, woe is me, I feel bad about it for a while, but it very often becomes a church's opportunity and value to actually call people to repentance. 
Friends, when you're in a community where sin is admitted and confessed and repented of continually, you see all the depictions of the gospel at play. And you're also instructing those outside of what it means to follow Jesus. The second category here for rightly manifesting a right response to the gospel is faith. So we must preach repentance and we must preach faith. Faith in God, in the promises that he has given us in Christ. Faith in God, in the promises that he has given to us in Christ. Now our church must preach and model faith. And what I mean by faith is faith in God and in the promises that he gives us in Christ. Where a local church is a community of people that are all acting on the things, think of it, that we cannot see. We're all acting on the things that we cannot see. We're all acting upon promises that God has made to us and holds out for us about the future things that we cannot see with our own eyes. We might wipe away the tears. We see, sing the song about faith becoming sight. Can't wait for the day. And in fact, the, the hymn says, Lord, haste the day when my faith becomes sight. And yet they affect the very real actions of our lives, even, even this morning, in this gathering, or other times in your own life. And it's not just me as an individual Christian, but it's us as a church that people can actually see us living a life out in faith. It's a community in which belief in God's promises are at the foundation for the hopes that we live for, in which God's word is central to our lives. So in our church, we need to treasure God's word and the preaching of God's word as it makes these things paramount. Making God's word known because that's how we are to hold out the very promises that we're called to run to. The, the weekly gathering of seeing what God has said. The daily intake on your own of seeing what God has said about himself. The wonderful and heavenly reminder of what God has said of what he will do. That's the confidence that we should have as listeners to the word whenever God's word is placed before us. And we pursue this with confidence, knowing and realizing that God has always, God has always created his people by his word, where the spirit wakes up the heart, regenerates the soul. You think of the power <laughs> that the spirit has. Taking something that is dead and making that alive by exposing the truth of what God has said about himself to where the soul wakes up and says, that's my king now. You hear of the centuries-old Anglican prayer every week in this room. What we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us into the likeness of your son. Those promises from the word being held out and our aspiration of going to God in faith saying, I know what I don't know. I know what I'm not. And I need you to transform me bit by bit. What are the means by which he makes his promises known to us in faith? But by the preaching of the word, the right preaching of the word. So we're built up in faith by the unleashing of God's very word, where God's Holy Spirit creates his people by his word. Romans 10 through, or Romans 10, 17 is so explicitly clear. It says faith comes by hearing hearing the message of Christ. And, and this is why the word is so primary in our gathering. This is why we do this longer than anything else. This is why when we stand to receive God's word, it means we don't just read part of a passage, not that there's anything wrong with that, 
not just one sentence from the scriptures, but we even take chunks and have it read to us. I would imagine if you do any sort of family worship at home, whether with your spouse or on your own or with your family, you actually open the Bible and read it. I mean, we read the Bible to Bradley, and I don't even explain it, you know, because the power of the word is just going out. You know, sometimes we'll read something, and it's like, that's really difficult to interpret, I would imagine, for a 10-month-old 10, to understand, but we believe in the power of the word going out. This is why you do it with a study Bible, so it has all the notes there. But uh, Paul said to the Corinthians that if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are more to be pitied than all men because we are spending our whole lives trusting these promises of God. And that's what it means to have faith. So we are communities that teach and display repentance and teach and display trusting in Christ alone for our salvation and completely for our salvation. So we are to treasure and preach God's word about God, about man, about Christ, and then what to do about it. Because in doing so, we hold out the promises that all of us are running to. And this is why our sermons should do this every week. This is why your Bible study you might do with other people should do this every week. This is why your daily intake of the word all the day long should do this all the time so that God's promises are calling us forward in repentance and belief. Well, I wonder how you might think of this, how you might think of the right preaching of God's truth actually impacts you. I think it's, it's obvious how it might impact you now. I hope that you're jealous of what I get to do every week where you get to open the Bible and tell people what it says. But what about Monday to Saturday? You might even say, well, I've got podcasts, but how do, how do I think about this? How do I do this? How do I make God's gospel on display for the rest of the world? One thing to happen here, but think about your role as a member of Crosspoint Church all week long. Your role, as a member, your role as a member of this church doesn't stop at 12 o'clock today. You think about that? You think about what it means to be a partner in a community of believers? It's that you are totally about something all day long. I have a friend who, he's a, he's a pastor and decently well-known. Um, he often will have to introduce himself because he travels a lot. And, you know, you sit next to someone on the plane and you talk niceties and whatever. And so you introduce yourself and he always asks them. But one of the things that he said that he's now started doing in the last year or so is outside of saying, my name's this. I'm from this area, but I actually live in this place. And I'm actually a member of X and X Church. And that kind of shapes the whole framework of how I view life. Also, I've got kids and I'm married and blah, blah, blah. And you think, man, that's, that's really, that's really intense. You might say your job before you say your membership in a congregation. So how do you and I expect for God's glory in the gospel to be made known to a lost world and to our own lives? God's word says that he saves you to be a part of a people. And you've chosen to be here at Cross Point Church. If you choose to go to another evangelical Bible preaching church, great. You know, you move away and you join another church, great. We're certainly not the only one, maybe even on this own street. But how are you making God's glory visible as a church member to the rest of the world? You may think you don't have that kind of power. You may think you don't have that opportunity. But the, the means is still the same, the actual preaching of the gospel. A lot of you know that, that Brooke and I, in the, or Brooke in the last several years, has had a multitude of miscarriages, and we've lost a lot of kids. Our grieving through these kind of things ebb and flow different between us and I'll often reach out to guys typically late at night and just say this happened and uh, I've got some friends who have gone through it as well and have been helpful one of them on a repeated basis has told me about a particular book to buy 
And, you know, this guy's a theologian. He's a biblical counselor at his church. And I thought it was going to be a thick book. Turns out it's a children's book. And it is not meant for children. It's kind of to trick you into reading a children's book, thinking, I'll buy this for ourselves and we'll read it. And reality it is written to the parents. And the title of this book is called The Moon is Always Round. And it's a remarkable short read where you have a child at the beginning is exploring the skies. And he looks up and he sees the moon and he says, why does the moon always change? And the dad says, the moon is always round. And he goes the next day and it says it's shaped like a banana. And dad says, no, the moon's always round. Even when the dad told him that he was gonna have a sister soon, mom and dad are pregnant, mom's pregnant, and you know, it's gonna be a little bit different for the next couple of months and the next couple of years, but you need to remember that the moon is always round. The woman starts growing, and her belly is now, according to this kid, the size of an orange. And he said, Mom's stomach is the size of an orange. And Dad says, yeah, and the moon's always round. Next page, Mom's stomach is the size of a watermelon. You can laugh. It's funny. And he says, yeah, and the moon is always round. And then one night, he couldn't see the moon. And his dad set him down. You see the image of the mom in the other room crying. He said, we're not going to have a little sister for you soon. But remember that the moon is always round. The next page shows that the parents are driving off to the hospital. Babysitter's coming over, and the, the dad says, remember that the moon is always round. They go to the hospital. They deliver the child. And they drive home. And the boy says, why isn't our sister with us? And the dad says, I don't know but the moon is always round. They show up to the funeral. The boy's on the front row. You can see audience is all there. Man's preaching, a man's preaching a message. And he looks out and he says, we need to remind ourselves in this time that the moon is always round. And he looks at the boy. He says, what, what's that mean? The gut-wrenching turn in this point in the book is that the boy's father was the preacher who had been preaching a daily lesson to his son, preaching a daily lesson to his wife, who was also right there, teaching a daily lesson for all of us to hear. And he asked the boy, what does it mean that the moon is always round? And the boy looks up and he says that God is good. Friends, you and I limit what we think the right preaching of the word does in many ways because we're so accustomed to it. And in many ways it's because we don't believe in its power. But a church will make visible the glory of God to the heart on the front row, to the heart in North Africa by announcing the goodness of God, the sinfulness of man, the redemption of the Son, and the call to respond and enjoy forever. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that we can go to you as our bulwark, as our foundation, as the one whom we can hear you preach to us day after day, 
hour after hour, moment after moment, knowing that it is good for us to taste and see all of who you are. God, we do pray today and in these next couple of weeks that you would build our hearts up in faith to receive the sufficiency of your commandments, to receive the kind teachings of your word, to where we can know you and enjoy you and make your glory shine to the ends of the earth. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.